far, we're in chapter 3. We're going to be doing the second half, starting at the bottom of verse 14 today. Uh, But first, I want to talk about secrets. Trying to figure out a secret is pretty fun, isn't it? You probably sent a message by a code to your friend when you were a kid, or did the one where you write it in lemon juice, let it dry, and then the only way you can see it is hold it over heat. Ooh, that's a pretty, you feel like a secret spy when you do that. Well, one of the movies that best captures kind of the joy and fun of uh, leading you to the next clue and figuring that out and then eventually finding the treasure is called National Treasure. Uh, It stars Nicolas Cage, and uh, many of you probably saw it. It's a pretty outlandish plot. Basically involves the founding fathers of the United States hiding a massive treasure, leaving a series of clues, uh, but it's a heck of a lot of fun. And so we're going to show you a great scene this morning, halfway through the movie, where they are at Independence Hall, where the Declaration of Independence was signed. There's a clue on the back of the Declaration of Independence, which they had to steal, by the way, which is no small feat. And then they need something to help them discover the clue. We're going to dim the lights and take a look. is this? It's a Centennial Bell. Replaced the Liberty Bell in 1876. There it is. All right, I'm going to go down there and you meet me in the signing room. Okay? All right. All right, let's go. 322. My idea. See the treasure past? Let me take this. Are there like early American X-ray specs? Benjamin Franklin invented something like these. Uh, I think he invented these. So what do we do with them? We look through it. Here, help me. Uh, time this was here, it was being signed. Ben, there's another tour coming. 
Turn it over. <clears throat> Careful. Spectacles. <clears throat> Here at the wall, spelled with two E's. Take a look. Huh. Wow. Why can't they just say go to this place and here's the treasure, spend it wisely? <laughs> well, it's a pretty fun fictional movie, but the reality of the daily grind of the Christian life, God has revealed the secret to you and I as well. Fortunately, we don't need crazy glasses, and it isn't written on the back of the Declaration of Independence. It is, in fact, hidden in plain sight, right in front of our eyes if we have the courage to look for it. And we're going to read Ephesians 3, 14 through 17 today. For this reason, I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you being rooted and established in love. My first point's entitled The Promise. You know, 12 years ago, I was an associate at Sanders Baptist Church in Victoria. And we were talking about as, as staff uh, about tough times and how we pray and what God really promises to people going through a really difficult, stressful, tough time in their life. And another pastor on staff, Lindsay, turns to me and says, well, Darren, Scripture's pretty clear. God doesn't always automatically solve all of the circumstances around you that are making life a challenge. He gives you the power inside to deal with it. And I'm embarrassed to say I had made it to that point in my Christian journey and never really comprehended that truth. Lindsay says, read Colossians 1.29. So I grab a Bible and I read it. To this end, I strenuously contend with all the energy Christ so powerfully works in me. I was a huge step forward in my Christian life. I think up until then, I had always prayed that all of the circumstances that God would take care of all of that, which is a legitimate thing to pray for. But now I changed my focus, and it became instead, God, strengthen me to do what you want me to do. Give me the power to make good choices in both the mountaintop moments of life when everything's amazing and the valley moments when it's really hard and difficult. Give me the strength to serve and love you each and every day. This honestly is what Scripture repeatedly tells us is the key to living the, life, the Christian life. In John chapter 15, Jesus gives this amazing teaching, this whole long exposition. And he, he repeatedly says, I am the vine, you are the branches. And throughout all that description, we discover that what Jesus wants us to do is plug into Him. It's where we get our energy, our life, our nu nutrients, just like a branch gets it from the vine. And that allows us to live the Christian life. And our passage today says it in an incredible way. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. 
I've been quoting Frank Thielman throughout the series, amazing Bible scholar. And he says, this request for his readers to be strengthened uses a term that is frequently aligned with the inner qualities of courage and determination. That sounds pretty good, doesn't it? Courage and determination. I don't know about you, but that's what I need most of right now in my life. I don't know how many times in my pastoral career I've heard the joke, must be a pretty great job, eh? You only work one day a week. Ha, 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 ha. I think I've heard it, I, I think a rough count was 376 times. Now, if I'm having a really good day and I'm happy and everything's going well, my response is usually like, and yet the amazing thing is I'm so tired all the time. I just haven't figured that out, just walking one, working one day a week. If I'm not having the best day, I get a little more catty and I say with a big smile, that's a funny one, really original. Did you come up with it yourself? Now, this job has its own unique challenges. It, it's weird because you're supposed to be exceptional at a whole bunch of different things. I'm supposed to be an incredible visionary leader that can cast vision, lead our church into the next stage of the effectiveness of the kingdom of God. I'm supposed to be a killer preacher that can hit everybody from 12 to 92 years of age, keep them captivated, explain the word of God like they've never had before. I'm supposed to be amazing at counseling sessions, visiting people in the hospital, be deeply empathetic. I'm supposed to be incredibly at ease, build friendships, share the gospel with people who have never darkened the door of a church in their life. I'm supposed to be the master of conflict resolution. Add in all of the stories of pain and hurt that people go through that you carry around, and it does make you a little tired. Now, I share that with you not this morning, not to to whine or complain, but just to be a little bit honest and real for you. Now, you need to hear me say loud and clear that what all of you do in all of your jobs has significant and real challenges that you are better equipped to do than I. My friend Ian Smith is a truck driver in our church. Ian has to get up at 2.30 in the morning, five days a week, to be ready to load and get in on his first delivery. I hugely respect that. I'm pretty sure I would die if I had to do that. We have nurses in our church They go into hospitals, deal with infectious diseases each and every day. The ones that jump to mind, Marley Holiday, Brenda Perlau, Bonnie Vaughn. That takes a lot of courage to head into those hospitals every day. Constant precautions to keep yourself healthy. We have high-tech workers like Jamie Graham or Don Bowden that have to go and solve really challenging computer, internet, internet, and network problems. And it's usually with people who can't even figure out where the power button is on their computer. So every job, every role has its challenges. And Paul gives us the secret to living the Christian life no matter what our calling and ministry is. I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. What a promise. Well, then Paul takes us into our next set of verses, our second point. And he says, And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all of the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure 
of all the fullness of God. Our second point is entitled, The Target. If you think about it, it's pretty neat that the Apostle Paul would pray for the local church that you were going to. I mean, if he wrote us a letter and said, Ocean View Community Church, I am praying for you today. That would be pretty amazing. And that's what he's doing for these churches in the city of Ephesus, scattered in the areas beyond, all through that Roman province of Asia. But just as he starts in on his prayer, he can't help himself. He's got so much to tell us. He interjects this statement. He says, and I pray that you being rooted and established in love. Now, we actually do this all the time when we talk, don't we? We may not know the grammatical term for it. It's called an interjection. Here's an example. You're talking to your neighbor. You said, hey, Jim, I know that you, being the amazing friend you are, would love to lend me your pressure washer. That's an interjection. And that's what Paul does. But what an interjection it is. And I pray that you being rooted and established in love. So what does that mean? How are we rooted and established in love in Jesus? Well, I think it's in three ways. God has shown us his love through the death of Jesus Christ on the cross. What an incredible decision of love. But he didn't stay dead. God has shown them his love through uniting them with the resurrection of Jesus when he came out of the tomb, conquering sin, death, and evil. Thirdly, God has shown us his love when he ascended to heaven, sits at the right hand of glory with God the Father. We are rooted and established in love. And what was true for those very first uh, Ephesian Christian believers who read this letter at first is also true 2,000 years later for you and I. No matter what happens in your life, good, bad, or otherwise, if you have put your full faith in Jesus Christ, if you have pushed all your poker chips into the center of the table, bet it all on Him, then you get this promise. You are rooted and established in love. And then Paul continues on, just bursting with these amazing truths for us. He says, You may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And when you stop and you ponder it and you think about it, it really is amazing. It's almost so big, it's hard to wrap our minds around. Many of you will have heard the name John Milton. He's famous for writing Paradise Lost. It was in the 17th century, English fellow. And uh, it's truly an epic piece of literature. Uh, if you aren't familiar with it, I looked up what one BBC writer said to sum it all up. And he said, this is the greatest epic poem in the English language. John Milton's Paradise Lost has divided critics, but its influence on English literature is second only to Shakespeare. So pretty high praise. It's a monumental classic. And in book three, scene one of Paradise Lost, God the Father asks this incredible question. Now, this is 17th century English, so the spelling is a little weird. But here we go. Some other able and as willing pay the strict atonement, death for death, say heavenly powers, where shall we find such love? Which of ye will be mortal to redeem? Man's mortal crime and just the unjust to save dwells in all heaven, charity so dear, 
He asked, but all the heavenly choirs stood mute, and silence was in heaven. It's an amazing scene. He plays it out. No one steps forward. No angelic being, no person. There's silence in heaven. And he writes that all of heaven began to despair, that all of humankind would be lost. And then the Son of God, second person of the Trinity, Jesus stands up and says to all of heaven these immortal words, Behold me then, me for him, life for life. I offer on me, let thine anger fall. Account me man. I for his sake will leave thy bosom and this glory next to thee, freely put off, and for him lastly die. The great scene goes on a little more, and then he ends with this incredible line, admiration seized all heaven. And you know what? 2,000 years later, all humanity is still admiring of that choice. He chose to do that for his incredible love for the human race, including you and I. It almost is unbelievable, but it is believable because all of world history turned on that decision. Everything from what year it is, 2020, to the presence of two and a half billion followers of Jesus on planet Earth is a result of that incredible decision of love. It's almost more than we can comprehend. No wonder Paul prays that we would have power to understand it. Then we move to verse 19. Love that surpasses knowledge. Doesn't mean love that you cannot learn about, but rather when you've learned all you can, the love of Jesus Christ goes way past that. It involves your heart, your soul, the deepest part of your emotions and your spiritual perception. And what does Paul say the effect of contemplating Jesus' love is? It's filled to all the measure of all the fullness of God. Experiencing Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one God. In the busy routine of study, sermons, etc., I face the danger that it will just be about head knowledge. That we could mentally acknowledge, yeah, Jesus loves me. But it has to go to our heart. There's a pastor in uh, Hawaii. His name's Wayne Cordero. He's the pastor of New Hope Church there in Honolulu. Sounds like a rough gig. He had another friend who was pastoring a church in Hawaii. That guy had an affair, absolutely blew up his church, massive shame and guilt from himself, his conscience, the local media, people in the church. A couple of months after it happened, Wayne Cordero met up with them. The guy looked at Wayne and said, I guess you're just here to condemn me as well. And Wayne looked at him and said, no, I'm pretty sure you beat yourself up enough. He goes, what I actually want to ask you is, how did that moment happen? How did that moment come to be in your life? What slipped in your heart and mind that led you down that road? And the guy looked across the table at Wayne, and then he picked up a Bible that was sitting there. And he goes, you know what I've realized I was doing? I was using the Bible and I was finding great stuff in there. And I would say, you know, this is an amazing truth for you. 
and he would give it to someone. Then this person over here would be hugely hurting and grieving, and he would say, this is an amazing comfort for you. And then this person would be confused, and he would say, God's Word has amazing clarity for you. And he goes, you know what I realized? It was deadly. Because I was giving it to everyone else, and I wasn't giving it to myself. He goes, what I should have done is, this is an amazing truth for me. Let it work in my life, and once the Holy Spirit has done that work now, I can pass it on to you. When I'm grieving, when I'm going through hard times, this is an amazing comfort for me. Now I can give it to you. And that's exactly what the Apostle Paul is trying to tell us in Ephesians 3. To know this love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the measure of all the fullness of God. To know this love, to really understand it. Not just know it in our heads, but to experience it in our hearts and our souls. May be filled to all the measure of God. You know, making time for your relationship with God, knowing and understanding Jesus better, asking the Holy Spirit for guidance and strength multiple times a day, praying to God of the Father with incredible confidence that we are sons and daughters adopted into the family of God. All that allows us to live the full Christian life. But just like any relationship in our lives, it requires prioritizing. I don't know about you, but growing up as a kid in church, I always heard, like, you should read your Bible, you should pray, you should do all those things. And every time I heard that, I thought, that sounds awesome. And I don't think I did that good enough. And it always kind of had this sense of guilt for me. And then... I think I was in college, and I heard about Brother Lawrence. Now, Brother Lawrence was a 17th century Frenchman. He grew up in poverty, and at the age of 17, joined the French army. And that was the period of European history where they were going through the Thirty Years' War. And all these European countries are attacking each other. It was an awful, horrific time. And finally, in total disgust in his early 20s, he left the army. And he signed up to be a monk. But he didn't have any formal theological training, so they welcomed him in, did some stuff, interviewed him, all this. Oh, he's, he really is sincere. He wants to be a monk. And they're like, great, we need someone to peel carrots. So he started peeling carrots. And they assigned him to the kitchen. And he worked his way up, and pretty soon he was the chef, and he was making all the food for all the, the brothers in the monastery. And he began this practice that as he was doing simple tasks, as he was peeling carrots, peeling potatoes, as he was driving to the market, as he was collecting eggs, all the things that he had to do every day, he just kept up this running conversation with God. All the other monks got to have specially designated times for study, for prayer, all that kind of stuff. He was kept so busy, he didn't have special designated times. He just kind of kept doing it as it went along. Eventually, he was stricken by an ulcer in his leg, and he had all these problems. So they reduced him. They said, okay, now you get to make sandals. He's like, wow, sounds like a fulfilling role. So he started making sandals, and they showed him how to do that, and he's just cranking out the sandals. And he just kept it up. The whole time, he was just talking to God, praying, having this amazing communion with God as he worked. And despite kind of having the lowest position in the whole abbey, people came from the village. 
It started to get this reputation, and person after person after person would come to the abbey, and they'd be very kind. They'd give them some food, and then they would always say, we want to speak with Brother Lawrence. And all the other monks kind of went, what about us? And they're like, yeah, you're great, but can we talk to Brother Lawrence? And it was amazing. And it became such a phenomenon that the other monks started to write down what he was saying. And it eventually is published in a book called The Practice of the Presence of God. Now, I'm not sure what that story does for you, but it made a huge difference for me. You know, if you are a disciplined person and you are like clockwork every morning, 6 a.m., you get up, you have your morning devotions, that is fantastic. You are a saint of God and you have a much higher place in heaven. I'm just kidding. But I admire your discipline. I do that sometimes, randomly. I'm not that good at it. I'm not that good at maintaining that. But I think once I understood what Brother Lawrence was doing, I felt like it gave me freedom to keep up a running conversation with God. And now throughout my week, I had a, had a you know, couple challenging hospital visits a few weeks ago as I'm driving there. I'm just talking to God. God, give me the wisdom. What do I say? How do I be a comfort? What do you want me to do for these people? I had some challenging other situations. I just keep up a running conversation with God. Now, how does that practically work out in the daily working life of all of you? Well, I was thinking about truck drivers this week. It's okay to pray on the road. I want you to keep your eyes open and alert to what you're doing, but you can also keep your heart open and alert to the Holy Spirit of God. I was thinking about nurses. It's okay to pray as you move from one patient's room to another. Maybe you're going to the staff room. Keep your eyes open and alert to what you need to be doing, but keep your conversation with Jesus running in those moments. Pray for the doctors. Pray for the patients. Pray for strength. Focus. Thinking about our mill workers down at Crofton, Catalyst, Fault, and Paper. It's okay to pray as you get ready for a big job, replacing parts on a huge machine to get it up and running. You can pray for strong mental focus. Pray God will bring to mind everything you need to remember to do your job well. I was thinking about stay-at-home moms, looking after kids. It's okay to pray in between times when you're trying to feed the kids, clean up from the kids, take them to the park. And you know what? Modeling for your little ones the idea that you can talk to Jesus anytime throughout the day That is an incredible gift to pass on to your kids. Who knows, Ocean V, you may just turn into the next Brother Lawrence. Well, now we turn to our final two verses, Ephesians 3, 20 and 21. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us. To him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. That is a faith-inspiring promise. That the Holy Spirit of God caused Paul to write down for those first new churches in Ephesus and the areas around, and 2,000 years later, for all of us. So what exactly does that look like in practical terms? He is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine. Well, I came across a story this week of a missionary. Her name was Dr. Helen Rosevere. 
She was a young English missionary. She was accepted by WEC, World Evangelism Crusade, as a medical missionary and sent in the early 1950s to the Belgian Congo. Today, we know it as the Democratic Republic of the Congo. She included this story in her book, Living Faith. This is what she writes. She says, A mother at our mission station died after giving birth to a premature baby. We tried to improvise an incubator to keep that little tiny baby alive. But the only hot water bottle we had was beyond repair. So we asked the children to pray for the baby and for the little baby's sister who now wouldn't have a mother. One of the girls responded, Dear God, please send a hot water bottle today. Tomorrow will be too late and the baby might die. Dear Lord, send a doll for the sister so she won't be lonely. And you know what arrived that afternoon? A huge package from England. The children watched eagerly as we opened. Much to the surprise, under some clothing was a hot water bottle. Immediately, the girl who prayed so earnestly began to dig deeper in the box, exclaiming, if God sent a hot water bottle, I know for sure there's a doll in here. And she was right. She pulled out a doll. The Heavenly Father knew in advance of that child's sincere request, and five months earlier, He had led a ladies' group back in England to include both of those specific articles. And if you think about it, God did even more than the little Congolese girl who prayed could imagine. Five months before, He arranged that. There's a website called Truth or Fiction, And they had heard that story and they wanted to know. And so they actually tracked down Dr. Helen Rosevere. She was quite elderly, living in London. She died in December 2016. And they were able to interview her in the first part of 2015. And she confirmed, yeah, that's exactly how it happened. Then she looked at them and said, I put it in my book. You know, the ripple effect spilled over it and inspired both faith in that village, confirmed to Dr. Helen herself that she was doing what God wanted her to do. Now, to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is work within us. I know several of you have teenage kids or young adult sons or daughters that are not walking with the Lord. For a whole variety of reasons, they have not put their faith in Jesus at this point in their life. I want to tell you one more story this morning. My parents were just over this past week to watch uh, Calista and Malia were in a dance competition, and so they came for that. And as we were driving to, the, to Duncan one day, they said, Darren, we got to tell you what's just happened in our church. And their pastor has a big family, eight kids. And uh, so the oldest son has kind of been going through a whole period of rebellion, almost two years. They've been deeply worried about him, staying up late at night, praying for this poor kid. And he has been involved in drugs and alcohol and just running away from God. Finally, near the end of November, beginning in December, God started to get a hold of his heart. And he started to go, you know what? I'm headed down a road of disaster. I have got to turn back to God. And he's been starting to make steps. And two weeks ago, just two weeks ago, he and some friends decided they were going to have a bonfire down on the beach. And they said, you take care of it. 
you're not drinking anymore, so you're in charge of the fire. And so he had this axe, he put it in, he built the fire, he put it back in the trunk of his car with no kind of fixed trunk, it was just open back there. The party finishes up at about 1 a.m. It was black ice. He drops his girlfriend off at her house. He's driving back home. He hits black ice. He does two complete spins, and he goes to tromp on the brakes, and a part of his phone car charger had slid into the brake pedal. He can't push the pedal down. He's spinning. He goes right over a cliff. Things are flying around. That axe is hitting windows. It's smashing things. He does two flips and comes to rest against the only tree on the entire bluff. They went back and looked at it in the daylight. And the car was caught perfectly in the middle against this tree. Nothing else. If it had gone the full length down the cliff, he probably wouldn't be with us today. He somehow gets out his cell phone, calls, they come, they cut his seatbelt out, they lift him out, they get him out of the car. He walked away with two minor scratches. That family is rejoicing and praising God. That kid was in church last Sunday, my mom said. He is a different young man. You know, two years that family had prayed, God, bring our son back. And I don't know if they specifically claim that verse. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us. Whether they specifically claim that or not, God answered that prayer. And he did more than they could imagine or ask. You know what, church? God is always at work. But we have to have the courage to pray boldly. Make sure what we are asking for lines up with God's great purpose of redeeming this fallen, broken world back to Himself. We have to pray with faith, truly believing that He can and does ask and do more than all we can imagine. We have to understand the secret that the power to live the Christian life in His power that is at work within us, within you, within me. We have to set our sights firmly on the target that we are rooted and established in love. And that allows us to be filled with all the fullness of God. And finally, we need to claim that promise that over a lifetime, He will indeed do more than all we ask or imagine. The secret, the target, the promise. Sounds like the kind of Christian life we should live. Amen? Ryan, come and pray for us.